Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. And we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. We've got a great show for you today. We'll be learning about a podcast called The Orientalist Express, and we'll have a discussion about current global affairs with the curator of that podcast, Nicholas Hayen. Uh, Nick Hayen has dedicated his professional career to educating Americans about the benefits of America's global leadership and U.S. engagement with the world. He is currently the Marketing and Communications Manager for Global Minnesota. He's also the 2022 President of the Minnesota International NGO Network, and he's a member of the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition's Minnesota Advisory Committee. His personal blog and podcast project, The Orientalist Express, seeks to educate all people about American foreign policy by making international issues exciting and relevant to the average person. Nick Hayen originally grew up in the small town of Mitchell, South Dakota, and completed his undergraduate degree in world history from South Dakota State University. After completing a master's degree in Middle East history with an emphasis on international relations from the University of Utah, Nick and his wife Hannah moved to Minnesota in 2014. In what little spare time he has, Nick enjoys biking, gardening, and collecting vinyl records. Uh, Nick Hayen, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you, John. It is such an honor to be here today. I really appreciate the uh, invitation. Uh, it's it's always fun to talk to somebody who's sort of a, a you know kind of a colleague in this space where we're trying to uh, drive home the importance of national security issues to people in the upper Midwest. This isn't an area that really pays a whole lot of attention to what's happening in the world, is what I found. Uh, Nick, let's do a little background on you before we jump into our discussion uh, on your podcast and foreign affairs and whatnot. You completed both an undergraduate and a graduate degree in history with an added emphasis on international relations. What, what was the catalyst that drove you to study history and those linkages to uh, international relations? Yeah, so I guess as much as I don't necessarily like that my generation is sometimes defined as the 9-11 generation, I think that event really was a defining moment for me to begin to think about the rest of the world. So I saw the immediate backlash against Middle East people and cultures, and I decided that I really wanted to learn as much as possible to dispel some of the myths and you know, even the outright discrimination that I sometimes saw. So this really inspired my original desire to pursue a PhD in, in Middle East history. And I started that path by completing my undergraduate degree in world history and then um, started a master's program at the University of Utah. But when I entered graduate school, I, I saw just how difficult it is now for even the best students to obtain some of these really rare jobs as college teachers and professors. And I wasn't necessarily the best student. I was a decent <laughs> student, but not necessarily the best student out there. Um, I, I also realized that I wanted to actively inspire change and to work towards a better world rather than, you know, just writing and reading about what a bunch of other people had done. So I pivoted slightly to complete the master's in history, but I spent the last half of the program really expanding my focus by taking all of the international relations courses that I could. And I think this approach was really beneficial to inform my study of the world. You know, sometimes foreign policy can get really bogged down in these theories about how the world works. Right. Uh, but I think that people act in many ways based on their understanding of the past. So other nations and cultures, they have a really deep understanding of their perspective on the past. So why shouldn't we in the foreign policy world try to understand their perspectives on the past as well? So ultimately, I really wanted to understand as much about the overall world as I could to try to do something about the global problems facing our world today. You know, to, uh, to borrow a line from a great song, I want a little less conversation, a little more action. <laughs> Yeah, I, I actually was also a, a history major for my undergrad time at the U.S. Naval Academy. Um, the master's degree that I that I earned was at the Naval War College was in uh, 
national security and strategic studies. So I, I, I sort of completely understand what you're saying there. And now uh, when I teach it at, uh, at Carleton College in the political science department, I'll be honest with you, I never took a single class in political science <laughs> in, in undergrad uh, or in my master's programs. Uh, but what I have found is that as a history major, we have a very specific way we, are, we how we are trained to look at the world, at the past, uh, to educate us for the future. And then as a career intelligence officer, that's a completely different set of training parameters. But I find that uh, the people who sort of trained only in political science, even in the international relations uh, sphere, they think about things very, very differently than we as history majors uh, think. And I think you need, you know, a good mix of those two uh, backgrounds and, and other areas, frankly, as well, uh, to, to find some people in the national security arena who have a broad enough perspective on understanding what's happening in the world and, and why it matters and why making good decisions in the national security arena are so important. Uh, so, Nick, you're currently working at Global Minnesota. Uh, just a little while ago, we had your boss, uh, the president of Global Minnesota, Mark Ritchie, on the show. Uh, tell us about the work you do at Global Minnesota and why your degree and your passion for foreign affairs dovetailed so well with your current position. Sure. So as a refresher to your listeners, uh, Global Minnesota is a Minnesota-based nonpartisan nonprofit organization that seeks to advance Minnesota's international understanding and engagement. And this is done through a variety of programs designed to connect Minnesotans with international visitors and inform them about global events and their local impacts. So we host international visitors from the State Department, and we put on public events on major foreign policy topics, including actually a really great discussion that we had last night about combating infectious disease in Africa. So that was a pretty, uh, pretty timely topic to discuss last night. Uh, we also facilitate what are called these great decisions groups around the state. And this is where groups of globally minded people, you know, just average everyday globally minded individuals get together to discuss international topics and hear from expert speakers. Um, I'm also really happy to announce that we have just finalized this morning a date and a featured speaker for an event on World Food Day this year. So that'll be on October 17th, and we will host the president and CEO of the World Food Program, All USA, right. who is uh, Baron Seeger. So really excited about that. Uh, he'll be talking about using hunger as a weapon of war, which we can actually see the implications of that both in a micro sense of what Russia's doing to use hunger to win its war in Ukraine on the battlefield, and then in a macro sense of Russia, for instance, blocking Ukrainian grain shipments to try to cause this global food instability, uh, which then in theory would pressure Western allies to try to bring Ukraine to the negotiating table. Uh, of course, the discussion will focus on how this tactic is used in warfare all over the world. We want to be cognizant of the fact that it's not just Russia and Ukraine. This is happening all over the place. Um, so just wanted to let everyone know to save the date for that critical conversation on October 17th. Uh, but one of my favorite programs is actually our Classroom Connections program, which brings international students and other global visitors directly into elementary school classrooms to teach about their country's history and culture. And this one is especially heartwarming for me because I have two young girls and I see how these children are so curious and fascinated about people from other parts of the world. Yeah. Um, I actually had both of my young daughters, uh, one Mira who's four and Florence who's just about two. They were both at the global social event last night meeting all of these, these you know, people from all over the world and giving them hugs at knee level and they just loved it. Um, and so we actually, as part of this Classroom connection series, we have these surveys that we complete and we consistently find that after these visits, children are more excited and less nervous about people from other countries and cultures after these visits, which I think really does just a great deal to help bring our world together. Um, so at Global Minnesota, my role is specifically as marketing communications manager. So it's among the most public facing of these roles as I handle the website, social media, newsletter, press releases, and pretty much other external messages. So it's certainly helpful to have a broad understanding of the overall global trends, at the very least, so I don't get my facts wrong. That would be kind of embarrassing. Um, and I would say that my passion and my degrees align very closely with this, because I really love to amplify and highlight what others are doing. You know, despite my appearance on this show, I don't necessarily need to hold the spotlight. You know, it's kind of nice in times. But I love to sort of pass the microphone, as it were, and show the world what others are doing. So this is basically a dream job for me, since I get to meet a wide variety of interesting and influential people 
and really promote all the exciting international discussions happening all over the state. And that sort of ties into actually how I got here. So after graduate school, I was looking to find this community of globally minded people. And I really wanted to return to the Midwest. You know, I had a choice either go to DC and try to tough it out there or try to find this community in the Midwest. And I chose the Midwest. Good call. <laughs> um, thank you. Yeah. I knew that there had to be an international community here in Minnesota that really cares about these sort of things. And once I found Global Minnesota, I knew I was in the right place. You know, we at Global Minnesota, we have something for everyone from, from hard hitting foreign policy discussions to meetings with foreign dignitaries to just fun cultural education and events. Um, so my main personal goal now is really to amplify Minnesota as a hub for global engagement. And that's especially true for people like me who wanted to find that global community that exists outside of Washington, D.C. So uh, for anyone who wants to know more, of course, you can visit globalminnesota.org, uh, sign up for the weekly newsletters, one of which I write, uh, which keep you up to date on all the latest happenings at Global Minnesota. And um, you, you might have mentioned earlier, our current president, Mark Ritchie, is, of course, retiring, as he mentioned uh, on the show. Um, and we have just posted a full job description and information on the search process for that, uh, for that position on our website. So I would encourage anyone who is interested in applying, or if you know someone who would be an excellent, excellent candidate, to check that out as well. All right. So, Nick, uh, I also mentioned in the opening that uh, you're on the Minnesota Committee for the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. Uh, what is that organization, and why should people also be aware of what USGLC does every day to further American national security interests? Yeah, so the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition is a national nonpartisan organization that really advocates for America's engagement in the world, and specifically for greater emphasis on our international development and diplomacy tools. So they have regional hubs throughout the country that meet with local leaders, businesses, NGOs, and even just farmers and everyday people to really show how all of us benefit from continuing to show responsible leadership on the world stage. And specifically, they advocate for the federal foreign affairs budget. So most people, of course, think that foreign aid spending is something like 30% of the government's budget or some, some <laughs> yeah. high figure like that. Not even close. <laughs> Not even close. Uh, it's actually less than 1% of all spending. And in exchange, that money actually funds the entirety of the State Department, the U.S. Agency for International Development, which is all of that foreign aid. And that includes some really great programs like the Import-Export Bank and the International Development Finance Corporation. Um, this also funds really amazing programs like PEPFAR, which is a program that has transformed the AIDS epidemic in Africa and saved potentially millions of lives. And a lot of these programs do things like, you know, say they buy wheat from local Minnesota farmers to send abroad to try to combat food scarcity, which is, of course, a big problem right now with the war in Ukraine. So it's basically every foreign aid program from promoting democracy to fighting disease to ending global illiteracy. And it includes all of our diplomatic consulates, embassies, State Department programs, all those things that leverage American soft power to achieve our goals and solve global problems. So ultimately, this, this isn't just frivolous spending, right? These are investments that provide substantial benefits for our own communities as well. So something like 20% of all Minnesota jobs are tied directly to international markets. If you talk to any farmer, and they will tell you just how important global trade is to sustaining their livelihood. So companies like Lando Lakes, Cargill, 3M, they're all critical to supporting our communities, and their success is ensured in no small part because of these investments. And then, of course, we have the national security benefits of global leadership. You know, our programs in public health, food security, they work to stabilize these areas of the world and help reduce, as you know, these threat multipliers right. that lurk throughout existing conflicts. So, yeah, it's less than 1% of the budget, but we, we get a whole lot more than that back on our investment. And that's really what the USGLC is uh, raising awareness of, because it's not just the right thing to do. It's really in our own self-interest to do it. It's a it's a strategic investment in the future of the country uh, to to invest in these uh, national security programs, uh, the soft power aspects. Here in Minnesota, we have uh, co-chairs for the Minnesota uh, committee, right? And these are some heavy hitters that are involved in this organization. Can you tell us a little bit about who some of those uh, sponsors are and who some of the leaders are? Uh, yes, I believe one of those is I want to say Beth Ford yep. uh, from from Land Lakes, uh, which is obviously a very big one involved with, of course, agriculture throughout the uh, throughout the world, uh, and 
And they actually have an arm of Land O'Lakes uh, Venture 37, which is their international development uh, arm of Land O'Lakes that really is, is involved in a lot of these programs and projects. And that's what's so helpful with, with these programs is, you know, a lot of times they will partner with organizations on the ground and really help with research and development. So they're researching, you know, cutting edge technology in some of these areas that they can then apply back here at home uh, to really even increase the efficiency and, and frankly, profitability of some of our companies um, and some of the operations that our farmers are running here. So it really does benefit everyone. And there, there are a significant number of companies here in Minnesota that uh, engage in, in global trade, uh, and, and they are actually strong backers of the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition with their partnership and donations and whatnot, because they realize how important it is for that soft power capacity uh, to stabilize you know, the world from a security situation, but then also from a an opportunity to expand global markets. So, you know, there's self-interest there, and I totally support that. I'm a big big supporter of capitalism, uh, but those Minnesota companies are fantastic champions for an organization like U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Nick Hayen, curator of the podcast The Orientalist Express, and we're discussing current foreign affairs challenges around the world. Uh, okay, Nick, let's go ahead and get into The Orient or the Orientalist Express. Uh, what is it? What happened to drive you to build that program, and who are your collaborators? Yeah, so The Orientalist Express, and honestly, it's 10 years, and I still stumble over Orientalist <laughs> Express. Maybe I should have thought of a different name. But, it's, a, it's a very you know, creative they, name. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll get into that in a second. Okay. But um, so it's my own personal blog and podcast project that seeks to kind of translate American foreign policy for the average person to understand. Um, so we know that misinformation and misconceptions about international topics and America's foreign policy decisions, they're, they're everywhere these days. So I like to take some of these really big subjects or complicated issues and just distill them into something that is short and easy to follow. So that name, Orientalist Express, comes from the term Orientalism, which was coined by historian Edward Said. And his theory is basically about how we in the quote-unquote West view and talk about the Orient or just other cultures in general. So if you look you know, throughout history, you can see these depictions of Asian or Middle Eastern cultures as, as weird, or barbaric, or mysterious. So I adopted that term as a way to sort of address that sort of thinking head on and to counter that line of thinking directly. And there is a little bit of a, um, of a line to the Orient Express, you know, if you remember that, that book and I think a movie from a little while back. So it's a little bit of a play on that too. Um, and so I decided to create the blog after some encouragement from my wife, um, which by the way, I, I should mention that today is my 10 year wedding anniversary. Oh, all um, right. Well, <laughs> happy anniversary. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, you know, of course, I just want to, to thank my wonderful wife, Hannah, for 10 amazing years of love and, and tolerance, of course. Um, I can't wait to see what the next 10 years brings because, you know, I really just owe it all to her in general. Um, I, I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so she thought that, that I should really use what I learned in grad school to help educate others about foreign policy. So at this time, remember, I had just moved to the Twin Cities. I had no idea that there was such a robust community of people who really cared about international topics. You know, I assumed it was there, but I, I, I couldn't find it yet. Um, I'd never heard of MIN or Global Minnesota or USGLC. So this was, of course, also right around 2015. So there was this really concerning isolationist trend, if you can remember, and some really wild misconceptions about what America's role in the world is and should be. So the blog was basically my attempt to scream into the internet at the time. <laughs> uh, it's very therapeutic for me. Um, and then, of course, one of my good friends, Stephen Howard, approached me about starting a podcast version of this. So I got together with him and some of my other graduate school friends, and we started writing articles, publishing podcasts about our perspectives on American foreign policy. So the main collaborators are, of course, myself, uh, co-creator Stephen Howard, and then we have some other recurring guests, including Matthew Spencer Coisil, who is a grad school friend that just moved to the cities and actually works now to combat financial fraud. Um, and we also sometimes have uh, a guy by the name of Tom's Ratfelders, who worked in the Latvian government and mm -hmm. is now completing a PhD, uh, I believe, out in De Delaware. 
and Valida Asmatova, who is originally from Uzbekistan, uh, from Uzbekistan. So we have a really broad range of voices. And of course, we're always looking for more guests to contribute to that project. So what, what, what are the topics that you've covered so far on your podcast? Maybe you could tell us three or four of the ones that you've really done some in-depth work on. And then what are you hoping to cover in the future? Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny because, of course, the very first podcast episode we produced was just a few days after the 2016 election. <laughs> so so we, were, uh, we were talking about starting it, you know, but we never quite got around to it. But that really sort of kicked it off since we all had just a lot to talk about after that. You know, there was so much concern about where American foreign policy was headed under what was obviously going to be a, a dramatically new and different administration. So we spent the first few episodes, honestly, just unpacking and reacting to some of the some of the wild turns that were being taken in those first few months. You know, things that we definitely had not seen before in international relations for a long time, and that included things like the former president's rhetoric on Russia, travel bans, and the abandonment of the Iran nuclear deal. That became a big one as well. Uh, but typically, our episodes tend to follow big events or trends in the news. You know, that's why, because we like to take these things from the news and distill them and kind of translate what's happening and why, why you should care. So we've done episodes around you know, trade wars, the pandemic, of course, or recently episodes on Russia's war in Ukraine and the NATO expansion. And we also like to take a broader look into topics like America's forward defense posture or European collective security, deterrence theory, and some of the foundations of sort of that US-led rules-based international system. You know, that's one that I'm really passionate about explaining uh, because it really is important fundamentally to just the stability and security of our world. Um, I've also had occasional special guests from organizations like the USGLC, uh, Emanate International, which is a local NGO. And I even interviewed former deputy director for Africa Command, uh, who's retired Admiral Michael Franken. All right. He's actually now running for U.S. Senate in Iowa. Okay. Uh, and looking ahead, I think we're going to start taking a look more at, of course, the rise of China, how the world seems to be sliding back into these spheres of influence among large powers. Um, and I'd really like to focus more on developments in what's called the global south. So, of mm -hmm. course, places like Latin America and Africa, because those are some of the world's most quickly developing areas with really large populations. You know, there's so much potential in these regions that we need to pay attention to. And of course, I'm always looking for just interesting and diverse voices to amplify on the show. So we'll see who's interested after listening to this. Yeah, that international uh, rules-based order uh, that you brought up a little a few minutes ago in, in this discussion, uh, that has served America and our allies and our trading partners very, very well since the uh, end of World War II. Uh, it has been really under under attack uh, by some of the rising autocracies over the course of the last decade. And that's really the competition that we see in front of us today, I think, uh, is who's going to reset the <laughs> or set the new rules uh, for the global uh, order. Is it going to be the liberal democracies that have done so since the end of World War II? Or is it going to be, uh, you know, sort of this, if the rising autocracies, if they are the ones that succeed, uh, in this struggle we're facing right now, what does that rules-based order start to look like? Is it a free-for-all? I mean, it's not good. It's not good. So, so Nick, let me ask you this. Uh, if our listeners uh, who are deeply interested in national security policy and strategy, you know, if they wanted to access that podcast, where would they find it? Yeah, it's really easy. You can just go to orientalistexpress.com, or you can even just Google Orientalist Express. It, it should show up. Um, there are, of course, there you can uh, find the blog and the podcast right on the main page, uh, again, with some other resources and information about some of the other organizations that we're talking about today. Um, and the podcast is also available on basically every podcast app you can find. So you should be able to stream new episodes in whatever app you're using. That's great. Now, Nick, I'm going to say this. Uh, some might say, Olson, what the heck are you doing interviewing the competition by, <laughs> by having this Nick Hayen guy on your show? But I'd, I'd say that's absolutely not the case from my perspective. Uh, I created this show with the full support of Jeff Johnson, the, the owner here at KYMN Radio, uh, because here in the upper Midwest region, the importance of national security issues to, to our area, to our nation, it really can't be overstated, I think. 
And any, I feel like anything we can do to educate and form, even entertain people about these topics is a great way to spur sort of meaningful discussions, conversations about the importance of national security policy and strategy among our fellow citizens. Did, I mean, did you feel sort of a, a similar mission or, or calling in creating your podcast and, and collaborating with your, your fellow uh, podcast uh, hosts? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, our information space, it's so fractured right now, and people can get their news and analysis analysis and opinions from just about anywhere. So the more people we have talking about these topics, creating this content, honestly, the better it will be and the higher chance that we'll have of reaching people who could really benefit from this information. So I really agree that we are not competitors in this space. For one, I, I don't think anyone is out there saying, well, I guess I'm going to stop listening to national security this week and, and listen to this random guy's podcast instead. You know, I, I just don't think that that's out there. Um, but we're, we're all more effective when we uplift and amplify each other's, each other's voices. You know, I always try to bring the impacts of these topics home to people who are living around here. You know, it's not always clear how events thousands of miles away can impact our lives here at home, but they certainly can. So I always try to answer that question, why should you care? Because if you don't care or you don't think any of it matters, then you won't bother to tune in in the first place. And I really see this across all of the things that we're talking about today, whether it be Global Minnesota, MIN, USGLC, or my podcast or your show, we're all doing slightly different things that are working towards the same basic goal of promoting greater international connections and educating people about the world. So I'm really a big believer in working together on these types of things. And besides, your radio show is, is probably much bigger, so I don't <laughs> think you have to worry about my project overshadowing you over here. You know, you, you mentioned uh, the results of the 2016 election and sort of a fundamental change in uh, American uh, foreign policy, uh, sort of policy and strategy. Uh, I think it's great to have those kinds of meaningful policy and strategy discussions. I don't think we do it enough here in our country. I don't think mm-hmm. we think uh, about the long term enough, like like true grand strategy, like way out there in the future, 25 to 50 years. What is it we're trying yeah. to shape the world to look like 25 or 50 years from now? We never have those conversations, right? And I think that we benefit by having more and more conversations about the importance of world affairs not just on our on our own lives here in the upper Midwest, but for our nation, for our allies and partners around the world. We need to think about these things. We need to be better informed citizens of the world. And to do that, I think we need to understand what's happening in the world and why it matters. So I think you frame that, that really, really well. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Nick Hayen, curator of the podcast, The Orientalist Express. And we're discussing current foreign affairs challenges around the world. So, Nick, let's put our thinking caps on and let's start talking about what's happened in the world today. Uh, we could certainly cover things like the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Maybe we'll touch on that a little bit or, or even the challenge that China holds for American national security interests. But, you know, we dive into these topics of national security challenges. And I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on some lesser known uh, events, uh, happenings around the world Areas that, that really don't get enough press coverage, in my opinion, uh, but probably should. And I'd like to start with Myanmar. Uh, there's some fundamental changes that have just happened in the last few days uh, in, in Myanmar. H- how do you see that tragedy as a crisis for American national security interests? What are, what are people missing by not following the situation in Myanmar? Yeah, and I'm, I'm really glad as well that we're focusing on some of these more overlooked areas in the world because they can be just as important in some critical regards. Uh, Myanmar was actually a pretty hopeful case for democracy in Southeast Asia with the election of Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, But of course, that all came crashing down when the military arrested her and took full control of the government and was really a textbook military coup. Um, You know, there was always tension between Suu Kyi and the military. um, But as the military began to become even more sidelined after this election with a supermajority in favor of Suu Kyi's reforms that would have really pushed the military out of the last vestiges of power it had. You know, that's when the military really finally stepped in to crush that democratic process in February of last year. So now we've got some open revolution and kind of the beginnings of civil war throughout much of the country. And it's, it's not fully clear yet which side, if any, will prevail, at least in the near future. Um, I would actually argue that 
Myanmar itself isn't exactly what I would call a crisis for U.S. national security interests specifically. Uh, that's not to downplay the significance, of course, of the military coup and the terrible things that are happening. You know, there have been major human rights abuses, and this is causing all sorts of regional, economic, humanitarian, and political problems. Um, but it's, it's definitely a problem and a tragedy in itself. And where this does cause national security concerns for the U.S. specifically, I would say, is really with respect to the growing problem of, of course, democratic backsliding that we see all over the world. And because these developments can really help to expand China's reach in the region. Uh, so as at first it was thought China might try to mediate this conflict, but um, as it's, it's fully backed the military regime now, which has given China another sort of friendly authoritarian nation that it can utilize in service to its own interests. So like in many places around the world, China's really utilizing its economic development initiatives to expand its influence. And this includes some major deals that it's working out with Myanmar's military on economic projects. And this is of course concerning because it gives Chinese power projection a major outlet into the Indian Ocean, which is right. something that China's kind of lacked uh, in, in recent history. And it starts to sort of encircle India to the east, which can become a problem as we've seen greater India-China tensions as well recently. Um, China can also extract some concessions from Myanmar's military rulers now through especially the ASEAN alliance. And that is in particularly important because it starts to deal with China's island building campaign in the South China Sea. Mm -hmm. You know, now it looks like China might get a more friendly vote uh, from Myanmar on its, you know, campaign to essentially just create new islands and then plant their flag and say, we get everything around this island now, which is sort of an exploitation of, uh, of maritime law. So as, as much as I hate to explain a country's significance only in terms of its relation to great power competition, because again, countries are their own actors with their own agency, you know, in this case, that kind of seems to be the case here, as long as Myanmar uh, continues to have this, this Chinese leverage on it over the ruling military junta. Yeah, and, and most people, you know, when they think about India and India's uh, national security challenges, they always focus in on, on Pakistan uh, mostly because the two countries are both armed w with uh, nuclear weapons and they share a border and <laughs> they've had a lot of yeah. negative interactions uh, since uh, since the uh, since the independence uh, of India and the break apart back I guess it was in '48. But the real strategic challenge in that part of the world is, has always been between India and China, uh, sort of the two biggest kids on the block uh, deciding who's going to be in charge. And China yeah. has been doing a fine job with Belt and Road, at least that's the initiative, uh, to try and uh, box India out of everything, encircle India. And, and uh, Myanmar, the military junta, uh, becoming a client of uh, Beijing uh, has given you know, the, the military access to a heck of a lot of new weapons. It does provide mm -hmm. potential for military basing for the Chinese uh, to move into the Indian Ocean, like you mentioned. Uh, but there's also uh, an extraction of natural resources out of Myanmar uh, back to China. So it's benefiting China economically and uh, it's certainly not helping the people uh, in Myanmar. And Myanmar is this really unique uh, cultural uh, collision between so many different ethnic groups in the country dominated by the Burmese, uh, of course, and the military junta is, is a Burmese-dominated uh, entity. Uh, we actually have a a professor here at Carleton College, uh, Tun Mint, uh, who is uh, Burmese, and he, he has been part of the democracy movement uh, going all the way back to 1988. Uh, and we've had him on the show, so listeners of this show, if you wanted to go to the archive and take a look at the show I did with Tun Mint last year, not long after the, uh, the, the current coup, uh, you can find out a heck of a lot more about what's been happening in Myanmar. Uh, Nick, we just had uh, some, some actual executions uh, that the the Myanmar military junta yeah. carried out against uh, some of the democracy activists in Myanmar. I mean, how do you think that impacts things going forward? I mean, I think that's unfortunately just kind of solidifies where where the track that they've been taking for a long time. You know, it almost seems like uh, the next logical step from their perspective in where they would end up going with this, and that's to increase the violence, increase the persecution, and ultimately to to take those steps that you know, we would all look at and go that this is completely unacceptable to just, you know, outright execute um, the people who are 
promoting democracy in your country. But unfortunately, that's kind of where they feel that they're at. They're not backing down. They're just kind of doubling down on the violence. And, and unfortunately, you know, countries like, like China that could put some pressure on them to either come to the negotiating table or to, to cease these types of behaviors, unfortunately, they are continuing to back them because, as you said, it's strategically uh, important for China, as it believes, to, uh, to continue that relationship and to solidify that leverage that it has over the ruling military power. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an unfortunate, uh, you know, digression in the, in the conflict currently. And um, I, I would be hard pressed to think that we're, we're not going to see more of that in the future. Yeah, and what I find really unique about this situation is in the past when the military junta has held control, uh, before they sort of gave Aung San Suu Kyi some, some opportunity to lead the country, uh, there was fighting, right, it's between the, yeah. the, the central government uh, and some of the ethnic groups around the nation. But this latest coup actually created a solidification of resistance amongst all the different ethnic uh, groups around the nation. And now you actually see the creation of sort of a people's defense force uh, units all across the nation that have stood up, volunteers from villages and, and whatnot, uh, that are training, they're seeking weapons. Uh, what this conflict, I think, has the potential to become is yet another instance of proxy war, right? where some nations will back the People's Defense Forces in a, trying to recapture democratic control of the nation, and then there's going to be countries like China and even Russia who will back the military junta uh, mm -hmm. to maintain control. What, what, does that, what does that say to you from a U.S. national security interest perspective? I mean, should we be backing the People's Defense Forces aggressively, maybe even through covert action through the CIA, and load them up with weapons, kind of like we're doing with, the, with Ukraine, or is that a... Is that a risky proposition in your mind? Yeah, I, I think it's a bit more risky than than in Ukraine, certainly. Um, you know, it's unfortunate to see this. This really feels like it's kind of back to the Cold War, where we're fighting these um, these proxy wars between authoritarianism and, you know, the forces of democracy, essentially. Um, I would say in Ukraine, it makes a lot more sense to be backing that, that resistance, because it is, you know, a a solidified army that has a command structure that is, you know, pretty cohesive. And, um, you know, we, we know exactly where these weapons are going, who's using them, what they're using them for. I'm not as convinced that we're going to see that in, in Myanmar. I wonder if it's going to be a bit more like in, in conflicts, say in Syria, where you know, we try to back certain forces and we give certain forces weapons, but then it's not always clear that where those weapons are going or who is actually operating them and for what purpose. Um, I think that we should definitely, uh, at least rhetorically, and provide some type of other support, you know, as a nation for these democratic forces to at least say, you know, we would prefer some type of outcome that is democratic, um, that is, you know, respective of the people's rights. But I'm, I'm personally not sure to what extent we should start throwing a bunch more weapons in there uh, because I'm, I'm not sure that that's really been too terribly um, helpful to a lot of these conflicts. You know, we we try to think that the force of the United States can can by just sheer force of action and will uh, make the outcome happen that we want to. And I'm just not sure that that's really been the case throughout a lot of these proxy wars that we that we um, have supported in the past. It is just yet yet another example of this uh, this fight between the rising autocracies and the liberal democracies on the world stage. And uh, we'll have to see how that particular situation turns out. Let's move on to Turkey, if we could. What role do you see Turkey playing in coming years? We know that uh, Turkish President uh, Erdogan recently kind of consented for Finland and Sweden to officially join the NATO alliance, but he extracted a number of concessions from the Finns and the Swedes in the process. In your mind, how important is Turkey to global affairs today? I mean, is Erdogan punching way above his weight class, or does Turkey really have that much of a role to play in global affairs that he can make those kinds of demands? Yeah, Turkey is a is very strategic, both in a geographic sense and in a diplomatic sense, at least in this region of the world, I should say. It sits right at the edge of the, of the Middle East and Europe, and its position at the outlet of the Black Sea really creates a major choke point along Russia's southern sea access. So keep in mind that throughout history, Russia, much of Russia's foreign policy has been in pursuit of obtaining a warm water port. Uh, they're really obsessed with getting a warm water port for obvious reasons, and that really uh, pushes a lot of their foreign policy history. 
And this has naturally brought it into competition with Turkey, who can control the access to those ports. Uh, so Turkey is also one of the oldest NATO allies, uh, partially because of that re reason. Uh, but culturally and historically, it really gets a lot of room to push back against NATO. Uh, so when modern Turkey was founded in the 1920s, after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, the founder of modern Turkey, a guy by the name of Kemal Ataturk, wanted to decisively shift Turkey towards Europe. Uh, but Turkey's current president, Erdogan, has really worked to sort of reverse this long-standing trend in Turkish relations. So Turkey's delay of Finland and Sweden's NATO invitation wasn't terribly surprising, to be honest, and neither was his eventual concession to allow NATO expansion. Because uh, if you've ever been to a Turkish bazaar, they have some really skilled bargainers there. <laughs> and I think that's essentially what uh, he is doing by creating this delay. Uh, he did get some concessions, mostly on those nations who are agreeing to uh, get tougher on elements of Kurdish groups. Uh, but those concessions have been kind of symbolic so far. You know, it's important to remember at this stage now, Turkey could still hold up the formal ascension through their right. own internal political process yep. of ratifying those treaties. Because each, each nation needs to actually accept and ratify. Um, and Erdogan has an election coming up next year, so it helps him domestically to be seen as sort of standing up to the West to get these concessions. Um, overall, I see Turkey continuing what it's been doing to sort of play both sides a little bit between the US and Russia. Um, and that's especially true as Erdogan is increasingly consolidating that government power directly under his decree, essentially. Um, ultimately, I think Turkey will continue to choose the US against Russia, though, for many of those historic re reasons. Um, but as far as, as far as punching above his weight, I think he's playing a decent hand really well. Turkey's location, history, its demographics all make it really unique to the region. It's always sort of stood at that crossroads between East and West and has shifted its focus between the two throughout history. You know, Turkey is, of course, a big player in Middle East politics, and that's where it will continue to have, I would say, the most leverage. Uh, but the only reason Turkey was able to delay this expansion is because every step of that NATO process requires the unanimous consent of every single NATO member. To take a domestic political comparison, Turkey is sort of like the Joe Manchin of nation states <laughs> when it comes to NATO expansion, <laughs> right? Because everyone else's votes are basically guaranteed and nobody really has the domestic political room to dissent. But Erdogan does. So he saw an opportunity to get some concessions and he took it. But it's not like he can do this in other ways or with other issues. You know, he has some leverage. But his leverage isn't nearly the same as Yaz with basically this neat, this uh, veto on NATO issues. So I, I got a couple of follow-up questions for you, if I could. So you're a, yeah. you're in a master's in Middle East history, so clearly you've taken a hard look at the region. Uh, I, I take a look at the region as a as a you know retired intelligence officer, and I see sort of the main competition for uh, hegemony in the region had always really been between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, and those, are, have, those two countries have really been the champions for, for Sunni and Shiite uh, Islam, uh, yeah. different sects of Islam. But now you see this sort of resurgent uh, Turkey uh, sort of creating a, almost a three-way competition for influence across the Middle East. And, and it's not just uh, what we used to see in the, in the fight for the Gulf, but now you have Erdogan exerting a heck of a lot of uh, force in the Syria situation. I mean, he's launched offensives in there to go after uh, Kurdish uh, populations that exist in that region that have successfully fought the Islamic State and also done a pretty good job of, uh, of holding off uh, uh, the Syrian government. He's also uh, projected power to Libya, of all places, uh, Turkey has. This is just, I don't know where that one came from, but, you know, he decided to do it. What do you make of those of those aspects of Erdogan's foreign policy. Yeah, I think it's interesting. He's definitely, um, even with like the NATO issue, he's seeing these opportunities where there's sort of a power vacuum or um, an area where he can kind of insert himself into policy and he's taking that. Um, and I see that, you know, a lot of this is because of quite frankly, you know, the, the invasion of Iraq back in the day that really sort of destabilized and took off one of the main pillars of what was happening in the Middle East. You know, of course, the competition between Saudi Arabia and Iran was among the biggest, but Iraq definitely had a very huge role to play there as well. You know, we had the, uh, the Iran-Iraq war lasting for nearly a decade in the 80s. Um, yeah. And so once that uh, pillar of the Middle East uh, sort of crumbled, 
we saw even more of a power vacuum. And I think that helped, of course, Iran to get more influence in the region, but then Erdogan as well. And I think we see that, especially with um, some of these more sort of authoritarian leaders where they, they see these, these issues where they can insert themselves in and they take that opportunity. Um, it's, of course, especially true in Syria because Syria does share a good border with, with Turkey. And uh, there's the Kurdish is- issue, which a lot of those Kurdish, uh, Kurdish groups are operating you know, alongside both sides of that border. So Erdogan really sees it not only as sort of a foreign policy issue, but even as a domestic issue that really does impact his own you know, personal hold on power. So we're seeing, of course, as you said, Turkey sort of rising to meet that challenge as well. And it's, it's interesting because, of course, you also have players like Israel, which has quite a bit of, of power and influence in the region, not necessarily working with, with proxies as much in some of these areas, but still throwing its weight around where it can uh, in certain issues. And um, you know, to, to a lesser extent, Egypt, although Egypt um, certainly was a bit more powerful back in the day when you see um, sort of the pan-Arabist movement uh, that happened several decades ago. Um, but yeah, definitely interesting to see how Turkey and Erdogan specifically is really rising to to see those those um, places where he can insert himself into into power. And uh, we'll see if that actually continues after Erdogan eventually is no longer in power, because now that he's building these structures to have a more authoritarian sort of state centered around him specifically, it'll be interesting to see what happens you know, when he is no longer in power at some point. Yeah, he's, he's not a super young guy anymore. So let me ask you yeah. this, too. Uh, we had the uh, the recent war between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the Nagorno-Karabakh situation. Uh, Erdogan played a, tried to play an effective role in bringing that, that uh, conflict to resolution, but it actually turned out, I think, that Putin sort of boxed him out to a certain extent. I mean, what, what, any comment on, on that particular situation? It seems to have stabilized now. We'll see if that if that holds, but... Yeah, on, on that particular one, um, I'll be honest, I haven't looked quite as much into that, but it does definitely speak to um, kind of, as you said, that conflict and competition between Putin and uh, between Erdogan. And we're really seeing that, uh, you know, especially in, well, in places like in Syria and of course in Ukraine now, where uh, Turkey knows that it controls all of that sea access in That's Ukraine. Right. <laughs> and and, and are, Russia yeah. obviously wants to... Erdogan to, is the gatekeeper it, for the Black Sea, so uh, quite quite literally. I've I've been to Istanbul. I spent one day there, but you know, I, yeah. I see how narrow those straits are right. and how easy it is to close close that off. Um, and it really speaks to how how Erdogan sees that he has so much leverage in this particular area of the world, and specifically uh, in regards to what what Putin is doing. But of course, Putin has quite a few cards to play on his own hand. Um, and so, especially in those areas of Armenia and Azerbaijan, you know, he looks at those as some of the some of the more fundamental issues to his southern border that he wants to make sure to to address. Yeah, and you brought up, uh, and we both have brought up, sort of the uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and it's amazing to me what role Erdogan has played in that conflict. I mean, he's Turkey has sort of been the host to most of the discussions. Uh, between the Ukrainian and, and Russian governments, and they are the ones trying to broker the deal to open up the Black Sea ports in Ukraine for export of grain, because there are people all over the world that are going to start starving to death pretty soon if they don't have access to Ukrainian and Russian grain that needs to get exported out of those ports. Uh, any any thoughts on Erdogan's role in, in that aspect of the of global global conflict? Yeah, and I think that that makes a lot of sense in the in the regards that. As much as the United States would like to think, oh, we can come in and be the uh, be the negotiators and the arbitrators, but we're clearly on Ukraine's side. So, from a neutral objective standpoint, Erdogan is able to play that at least a little bit better in the eyes of of someone like Putin, where you know he knows that even if you know Erdogan is essentially on the United States side in the vast majority of regards, he does have some uh, leeway there to sort of act as that mediating force. And um, you know, as much as we wish the United States could be the one to come in and, and save the day and uh, host this grand spectacle where we bring peace and, and have both sides sign a piece of paper. Uh, most other, well, at least Russia does not see us as that type of mediating force. Uh, so they're looking for someone else who can do that. And Erdogan is, again, conveniently, uh, geographically and diplomatically positioned to play that role. And so we'll we'll see what happens with other uh, 
with other issues and conflicts throughout the world. I think in this one particular, Turkey really has a lot of leverage, but in some of the other ones, I think we're going to see that that leverage wane quite a bit. Uh, let's move to Iran, if we could, the Iranian nuclear program. What's your take on that program and on the Biden administration's efforts to renegotiate the nuclear deal, and frankly, on Iran's influence in the Middle East in general? Maybe, maybe just yeah, three, three, four minutes. What are your thoughts on that topic? Uh, yeah, so it's it's really unfortunate because like several things in U.S. foreign policy, the previous administration really handed sort of a no-win situation here. Uh, remember that we actually broke the terms of the initial deal. Uh, pretty much everyone is agreeing that Iran was holding up their end of the bargain, still definitely doing some terrible things in the, in the Middle East region, but every indication was that Iran was sticking to that deal. Um, and so when we, when we broke that, it really damaged America's reputation and we lost what little credibility we still had in the eyes of Iran. And then, of course, we tried the so-called maximum pressure campaign of extremely harsh sanctions, uh, but that plan ultimately failed. You know, many of our allies didn't go along with these sanctions, so Iran had plenty of workarounds, and Iran has always had some level of sanctions on it for decades. So they've built their entire economy to survive being sanctioned by the West. So rather than drive Iran's population against the government, it really conversely um, was an easy way for the government to blame all of its problems on America. So that deal, of course, wasn't perfect, but no deal ever is. You know, it really did a great job of suspending any forward movement on Iran's pro program for an entire decade. Uh, that's way better than what we have now, of course. And that deal could have given us time to work on Iran's other problematic behavior in the region, try to patch some of the holes in that deal. Uh, but I'm glad to see the Biden administration is trying to restart this again, but it's just not clear to me that we can go back to the way things were. You know, Any deal we try now, just as easily be undone by the next president, which might even be Trump again, you know, we'll see. At, and this time around, Iran has a much more hardline government with Raisi. It gets its dip diplomatic political support by really being uh, against the United States. And the incentives for Iran's cooperation are greatly diminished. You know, lots of countries need Iran's oil now because of the war in Ukraine. Um, and prices are so high that Iran stands to gain a lot of money from the, from the energy that it does manage to sell. Uh, but ultimately, the only way to really stop Iran is to stop their desire to get a nuclear weapon. You can't bomb the idea out of their head because it only reinforces why they want a nuclear weapon in the first place. Right. So we have to try to persuade them that nuclear weapons are not in their interest. Yeah, once a country acquires nuclear weapons, they sort of have a, a meaningful deterrent, <laughs> which is yeah. the whole reason why you acquire nuclear weapons in the first place. I have always found it kind of interesting that, I mean, I, I'm fine being... You know, from a national security perspective, I'm fine being uh, tough on countries that are, uh, you know, stirring up trouble around the world. Yeah. And we, the world should be tough on those countries mm -hmm. that are purposefully destabilizing their neighbors and whatnot. Um, the challenge is that American foreign policy, American, uh, you know, hawks on Iran always want to go on the offensive against Iran from a from a diplomatic and an economic standpoint, a lot of threats, uh, you know, militarily. The challenge is, is that Iran internally, and you know this, you've studied the, the situation, you have the hardliners, but you also have reformists inside of Iran mm -hmm. who, who try desperately to jockey to gain power. And we actually have had two presidents in Iran who were reformers, who if, yeah. they, if we had supported them effectively, could have pushed back against the, the Ayatollahs, the, the, you know, the ruling religious, religious elite, and, and maybe made some fundamental changes inside the country. But when we when we undermine the reformers' ability to to work from within, we just give more and more power to the uh, the hardliners inside Iran and make it even harder for us to succeed uh, in in bringing Iran into the into the modern day. Nick, we only have about seven minutes left. I want to ask one last uh, question, and then I want to ask you about uh, the International NGO Network. Uh, I want to sort of pull things together for our listeners. We often talk about the tools of national power on this program. Those tools are diplomacy, the power of information, military power, and economic power, and we sort of refer to those tools of national power using acronym DIME, D-I-M-E. Yeah. How we use those powers, either in hard power or the soft power that you talked about earlier with U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, can be referred to, I think, as statecraft, and, and I think that's both an art and a science of how you apply statecraft. Uh, would educating American high school students in statecraft and the tools of national power be beneficial for our nation, in, in, your, in your opinion? Is that a smart strategic investment in the future of our country? How important is it for young people graduating from high school 
to understand the world in which we live? And, and would we attract more of our best and brightest into the national security field if, if more high school students really understood was what was at stake for the future of our country? Well, I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, it would absolutely be a smart strategic investment. It's so critical that we educate everyone on the importance of diplomacy and the various tools that we have at our disposal. disposal. And I think this is especially true as we look to inspire that next generation of global leaders. You know, we see advertisements to join the military all the time, and that's great, but we need to be expanding our diplomatic and development agencies and recruiting directly for those as well. I can tell you so many young people would jump at the chance to join these programs, but we either don't provide enough funding to open new spots or we put up too many unnecessary roadblocks for them to join. You know, as a high schooler, you can walk into a military recruitment office and it'll take you through every step of the process. But how many kids even know about entry-level State Department or USAID jobs, let alone how to actually get one? I mean, I tried for years to get one of those with a master's degree, and I still couldn't quite figure it out or make it work. <laughs> so investing in our future by educating young people, providing these clear opportunities will absolutely serve our national interests. You know, as other nations rise to greater military power, we need to look beyond simply our military abilities and invest in, as you said, those, pow- those tools of power. If you don't believe me, just look at what China is doing for its civilian uh, development core. You know, they're pouring massive resources into this, and it's time we step up before we miss this opportunity. Um, but young people today are they're keenly aware of the importance of this moment in human history um, and want to solve these global problems. You know, I see so much encouraging activism, but they're in many ways very disaffected with what the U.S. has done over the past 20 years of foreign policy. So we owe it to them to show that we are capable of doing things differently, that we're capable of using America's influence and power to, in a responsible way to solve these problems that face the entire world. You know, USGLC is doing this, their Next Gen Leaders program. Uh, MIN is doing this with their Fellows program. Old Minnesota is doing this with programs like Academic World Quest. And they're looking to bring great decisions programs directly into the classroom so students can discuss these critical issues for themselves and hear directly from expert speakers. Ultimately, we need to inspire ourselves and our children and show them that we have this unique sort of privilege in this country. We live in what is probably the most influential nation in human history, and our society is one that encourages activism, activism and engagement rather than punishes it. So we can do our part to make the world better. We don't have to abandon America's role in the world just because of the mistakes of the past. We can instead ensure that we use this power responsibly. Because if we abandon our spot at the world stage, someone else will fill that void and they won't necessarily share our interests. Those are great thoughts, Nick. Those are great thoughts. So we're closing in on the end of today's show, uh, today's edition of National Security This Week. I want to make certain I, I ask you about the Minnesota International NGO Network, and you serve as the president of that organization. Tell us about the International NGO Network here in Minnesota. Yeah, so MIN is, of course, that Minnesota International NGO Network. I currently serve as the president of the board. It's a small nonprofit organization that seeks to connect all of Minnesota's international NGOs to share ideas and work together to do global good better is kind of our mantra. So it's any NGO that's based in Minnesota and does international development work can become a part of our network, either informally or by becoming a member. We recently did a survey and found that there are nearly 100 international development NGOs based in Minnesota. Holy cow. Yeah, which really speaks to the capacity of our state to do good in the world. Um, And of course, many of them rely on funding from that federal foreign affairs budget I mentioned earlier. But we host a variety of events throughout the year, including networking sessions, panel discussions with development experts, uh, an executive roundtable series that brings together nonprofit executives to discuss big issues in in international development. Um, We have one coming up on October 17th. Uh, which will be held in person at Impact Hub in Minneapolis. We'll feature Jill Lalonde, who is the former president of MIN and a current executive director of One Village Partners. Uh, so we're really excited about that one. And lastly, we have our biggest event of the year, which is our annual summit. That's a full day of basically all of this stuff where you can learn about international NGOs. And it's happening on October 13th this year. It'll be at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. All right. All right. So, Nick, one more time, where can people find your podcast, The Orientalist Express? Yep. So the podcast is at orientalistexpress.com or any of your standard podcast apps. Um, Again, I also encourage everyone to check out Global Minnesota at globalminnesota.org, where we have some excellent events coming up, min at minnesotangos.org and usglc at usglc.org. So lots of .orgs for you. Nick Hayen, thank you so much for joining us today on National Security This Week. 
Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I'll let you go because it sounds like you have a couple of young daughters out there in the background who could use a little daddy time. <laughs> yeah, I suppose I should probably. I mean, mom is, is watching them as well, but uh, yeah, they might they might want to see me here. And folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're here on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Check out KYMNRadio.net for show archives. Listen to your favorite shows from your computer or download the podcasts and listen to KYMN anywhere, 